Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. Biblical Conversations is an invitation to a new way of thinking about Scripture. Typically, we come to Scripture looking for answers or to find wisdom, the Word of the Lord, or to find insight into the human condition. And while those are great questions to ask of Scripture, this podcast is about a new way of thinking about the Bible, a new way of looking at Scripture as an extended series of conversations, biblical conversations, conversations that are often in conflict and just as often finding conflict resolution. The Bible, like Jesus himself, is fully human and fully divine. And here we're going to explore the human side of this equation as a portal to deeper appreciation and deeper insight into the Bible as the very Word of God. The Bible was written by many different people with different ideas and different agendas. The authors of Scripture were people like you and me about the task of understanding this Yahweh who led them up out of Egypt and into the land of promise and who comes to us in the person of Jesus, our Christ. The Bible, as a fully human document, conveys ideas about God that are in conflict with other ideas about God in the Bible. The Bible is a human story about how these ancient people of faith with conflicting notions and competing understandings learned how to resolve conflicts and develop communities built on shalom. And this is why this is so important. We still live in community and we still have conflict, conflict that's getting worse by the day. We still seek shalom. We need to find shalom, God's peace. There's an art to learning to live within the bonds of peace and by divine grace in blessed community. And I believe that the most exalted, at least for me, the most transformative way we can experience the scriptures as, as the very words of God is to grapple with them in all their humanity. I've come to love the Bible even more passionately as God's word because it comes to us in the dust of history, the grind of politics, and the gore of warfare. It conveys a history generated by people of faith on a complex and meandering journey of redemption and grace. The words of these particular people have become for us the very word of God, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a gift that points the way toward reclaiming blessed communities of shalom today and to God's eternal kingdom. Are you up for a new way of engaging in the holy scriptures of our faith? Let's have a biblical conversation. Hello, my name is Joel Allen, and I'm the host of this podcast called Biblical Conversations. Biblical Conversations is an honest conversation about the difficult aspects of the Bible with a goal toward developing understanding that leads to enriched faith and deepened discipleship. This particular episode is called Wisdom and the Art of Biblical Compromise. In this episode, we'll explore a conversation or a debate that's clearly going on in the Bible, or I should say, I believe is going on in the Bible. It may not be clear to others, and hopefully it will be clear to you by the time we're done. But it's a, this is a discussion about a debate that's going on in the Bible itself as to whether or not it's appropriate for people who are committed to the Yahweh of ancient Israel, the Yahweh who led our ancestors out of Egypt, or people who are committed to this covenantal God who requires their full allegiance. Is it appropriate for these same people to also read and incorporate in their understanding of God a non-Israelite wisdom literature? Some people in ancient Israel seem to be very open to this and other people seem to think it was absolutely wrong. I think you'll find both sides of this debate represented in the pages of sacred scripture itself, along with a creative resolution. I'm going to go over the basic material first, and then we'll uh, include or join into this conversation my friends Adam and Brandon, so that we can have a three-way conversation about this issue. I hope you enjoy this, this episode. I hope you subscribe to it, and I'd be very honored if you would recommend this to others. So this is Wisdom and the Art of Biblical Compromise. 
Before we move forward into the material that I'd like to present, I'd like to provide a word of explanation. I've changed the way I'm planning on laying these podcasts out. I had been planning on publishing them on a monthly basis and doing fairly extensive recordings uh, up to an hour on the topic. And I've learned more about how best to do this. I listened to a podcast about doing podcasts. And in that podcast, they strongly urge you to do a, a weekly or a very regular publication. It's just easier to, for people to follow if it's a regular thing and if, to do shorter uh, episodes. So I thought what I would do is break things up into units. And so I'm going to start uh, publishing these podcasts in units. And in this case, I will publish this section, which is fairly long. And then the interview that I do, uh, which I'm, is, is coming up in a few days, I'm planning on recording that interview, but I'm going to go ahead and publish this now. And so in the future, these are going to be published in units rather than one long public, public pod, podcast on a monthly basis. I'm going to be publishing several on a weekly or or thereabouts basis. So uh, there'll be more podcasts with shorter uh, discussions, topics, and um, and then a little bit more review at the beginning of the second, third, and fourth uh, edition. So to long and the short of it is, in the future or from here on out, I'm going to be publishing these. Uh, the same topic will be published in several different units. And so, uh, and so I'm publishing this as a unit, and then I'll publish my conversation, which I'm going to record in a few days with Adam and Brandon. I'm going to rec I'll, I'll publish that in either one unit or two. And so, uh, so there, rather than the, so the first few podcasts are long, extensive things, but from here on out, they're going to be shorter with say one topic. Podcast one, two, three, maybe four on that topic, then move on to another topic, podcast one, two, three, four. And so that's the way that will work out. And I just want to give you a heads up. If there's anything that we really need in our culture today, it seems to me we need a new appreciation of the art of compromise. Our culture has lost this capability, and I think it's going to really hurt us in the end. We need to learn the art of thinking in the middle and compromising with people that have different opinions, of to be able to listen to what someone else says who, you have, who with whom you have a strikingly different opinion and finding what you can agree with, with the good in what the other person is saying, and to learn to think from the middle. We think of this as almost weakness and mo moderation as kind of like this weakness. And yet the political and cultural gridlock, gridlock that restricts us right now uh, is restricting us from achieving the common good. We are losing that capability of, of, of discussing things with people that are, star are starkly different in opinion. I think about, I've often thought about the relationship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. And uh, I would love to have uh, that kind of friendship. And I do have friendships with people that have strikingly different opinions, uh, but those, and, and those are valuable to be able to sit down with someone who has a strikingly different opinion and have honest conversation. It's such a meaningful experience. And in our culture, as I'm saying, we're losing that. We're, uh, we, we think of, of moderation as weakness, as I said. And moderation doesn't generate the you know, useful sound bites that we're sometimes looking for. I think of, a, of a, a little meme that I've often seen that says, you know, it's a sign, you know, like people protesting. And on the sign, it says, what do we want? Moderation. When do we want it? In a reasonable time frame. So um, that illustrates how moderation sometimes might not generate the useful sound bites. Yet real progress happens when we learn to think from the middle. And the Bible actually provides some beautiful examples of people that learn to think from the middle. It's not the way we typically think about the Bible. We think about the Bible as, as reflecting uh, thou shalts and thou shalt nots as the, the kind of core of the Hebrew scriptures. And that's hardly a role for compromise. But the fact is, if you listen to the last podcast, you'll know that uh, the law of the Bible is not as set in stone as one might think. 
These are not uh, judicial laws. They're more like common law, expressing values and wisdom, uh, ways of thinking rightly about what God wants. But they're connected to narratives and they're, uh, the laws of the Bible are not uh, quite as set in stone. And sometimes they change. One law will say that uh, when, you, um, when you cook the Passover uh, lamb, you should roast it and not boil it. And then you, that's in Exodus. But once you get to Deuteronomy, it says to boil the Passover lamb. And so laws can take different forms in different contexts. They're not as set in stone, as I said. And so you can listen to the previous podcast uh, for some of that conversation. But the Bible actually does have some striking um, uh, striking texts that uh, that show, and I, that, I should say, there are issues that you can trace through conversations that are going on in the Bible where a compromise is achieved. And one particular issue is the question, should Israel have a king? I'm just using this as an exa exa another example of compromise in the Bible. And I'll do a whole episode on this uh, coming up. But some texts it seemed to indicate that having a king was God's absolute will from the beginning. God wanted Israel to have a king. And other texts seem to accept the, the king as, uh, or seem to say, or Samuel seems to say when the children of Israel first ask him if they can have a king as the other nations do, Samuel indicates that it's to, to if you have a king, God even says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they are rejecting me because Yahweh already is their king. And so, uh, but eventually a compromise is achieved and the compromise is something like, okay, well, we're not gonna have a king like the other nations, but we're also not gonna just have judges either. We'll have a limited kingship overseen by a prophet. So a prophet came, came to bring limitations on the role of kings. And then if you look in Deuteronomy, the role of a king is even reduced further. So, uh, so this is a unique compromise in the ancient world. There's no other nation that develops a limited kingship like this. Kings in the ancient world had absolute power, but in Israel, they're limited by the prophet and by the law. And so, uh, so that's a compromise. It's a biblical compromise. And you can read both sides of the argument in, in the pages of scripture. And so the compromise we're looking at today is a specific question. Should people from Israel committed to this covenant God who delivered them out, up out of Egypt, should these people also read and incorporate in their faith non-Israelite wisdom literature? The fact is some texts say yes, some texts say no, and a compromise is achieved. And that all happens within the pages of scripture. And so that's what we're going to explore as we move forward in this episode. So what was this wisdom tradition? The wisdom tradition was associated with the scribal schools of the ancient world. So every advanced culture in the ancient world would have had a school of scribes. If you were of the noble class of the ancient world, you would need to communicate with other people, with people from other regions or within your domain, you would need to communicate. And so you would develop a group of people that knew how to read and write. That was a very specialized knowledge. Very few people in the ancient world knew how to read and write. Uh, you might even be an emperor and not know how to read or write. But you would have scribes that would do that for you. And it was specialized knowledge. And these were very highly advanced people that lived at the upper echelon of society. And they knew how to uh, do this especially important task. They, these scribal schools developed understanding that uh, about life in general that they collected. So and associated with these scribal schools were uh, a, a group of sayings that they would pass around to each other that became a whole body of literature on how to live a good life and how to advance in the court, how to be a kind of person that knows how to behave in front of, an, of a king or a, a regional uh, emperor or powerful person, how to behave in before them so that you could uh, advance and avoid suffering and so that you could advance in the court. And so the scribes collected this kind of wisdom and it was also associated with families because families would teach this to their children so that they could be a success. And so the literature was kind of like 
the kind of business literature that you might read about how to become a personal success, how to make friends and influence people, that type of literature. So they're asking, how can we flourish in our humanity? They're, uh, they assume that the world is understandable and manageable for our benefit. And so this literature has these assumptions baked into it that the world makes sense, that it's got some patterns and principles that make sense and that you can uh, operate in it so that you advance in this world. And um, uh, it, it tends to have what you could call a creation theology. In other words, they believe that the world is created by a wise and good God or God's and uh, and that it was that that it you could understand the principles by which God created the world and God baked this wisdom into it and when you understand it you can cooperate with these basic structures of life so that you do well and so that you advance in the world and one uh, Egyptian example of uh, wisdom literature is the uh, instruction of Amenemope, which we'll talk more about later. But in that literature, Amenemope uh, re- speaks, is a, is, he's a scribe and he's writing to his own son, actually about the time of King Solomon, that this is written. And, um, and he, uh, you, he talks about both uh, the two gods that he refers to are Ra and Thoth, but often he'll just talk about the God. And most often he just talks about the God. And uh, the God is a God of perfection and a God of the judge, the God that, that wants us to, um, to live a life of humility. And so uh, that this is a kind of teaching that people in all over the world would have been interested in reading. So maybe King Solomon uh, would have wanted to read this wisdom literature. What, how, what, is that a good or bad thing? Should Solomon be reading the instruction of Amenemope? That's kind of the issue that, uh, that we're dealing with, the question we're asking. And so just to continue talking about w- the wisdom literature in general, I'm going to summarize a little bit of the introduction of to the book of Proverbs in the Common English Bible, Study Bible. And it says here, of course, most of the Bible is written from the perspective of God's relationship with our, ans- with our ancestors, God's covenanted relationship with Moses and Sinai, uh, God giving of the law, the revelation of the law. But it says here, wisdom literature has a different focus and theme. And it's one shared by all societies in all places. So every different culture has this different types of wisdom literature that are unique to their own region. And so the concern in this type of literature, this genre of literature, is the human struggle to find answers to age-old questions of life that are basic questions. They're not unique to any group of people. Everybody's asking these questions. And those questions would be, what is the place of each of us within the greater scheme of life? How do we handle the countless relationships that we experience in life? How do we understand what appears to us as unjust suffering? And so the wisdom literature is, refers to this quest to understand and organize reality so that you find answers to questions about these meaning-to-life issues. And you pass that information on from one generation to another. That's a key to it. So wisdom has roots in families that share these insights and wisdom. It has its roots in in, the scribal schools. And as societies become more structured, this wisdom makes its way from one family group to to a national level and even religious systems. And that uh, over the centuries, people saw countless patterns of cause and effect in everything of life. And they tried to understand those so that they could uh, they could cooperate with them to get the best benefit and to avoid pain. So these beliefs led to the belief that the gods had set up a basic order that controls human life and that our job is to understand and maintain that order or else there's going to be chaos. So wisdom is in a temple to kind of struggle with the with the the the. Uh, the stuff of life, really, in order to bring about uh, order and to avoid chaos. And so the wisdom of the ancient Near East and every culture had their wisdom literature, tried to define the good created order and tried to find times in human history that could be understood as that where you could learn lessons about how to, uh, to order things so that you bring about good and not bad. So wisdom is a way of thinking about shaping reality. It, it includes ideas that uh, people in a society share and what they expect from life. 
And the wisdom writers try to put the world into categories and groups to measure human actions and to evaluate the status of life events and trends and so that they could recommend a certain way of living. And so this literature becomes a, a particular style or genre of literature with a particular view of reality that is that used to structure human society. And the book of Proverbs is a, a part of that genre. It presents a common way of or view of life that uh, looks to wisdom as a way of ordering path the paths of life to bring about uh, to bring about good and blessing and to avoid curse. So you're to act wisely, you're to live in harmony with others, you're to obey God's commands, you're to be a sensitive about, uh, about others and uh, to be caring toward th- those who are less fortunate. And so in Proverbs 3, verses 14 through 18, it talks about wisdom, and it refers to wisdom as a her here, because wisdom is feminine, and, and, and also because wisdom is depicted here as a woman calling the, the, the simple to follow her ways. And she says, for wisdom's good profit is better than getting silver. Her return is better than fine gold. Wisdom is for, far more precious than rubies. None of the things you can desire are to be compared to her. Length of days are in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to all who lay hold of her. Happy is everyone who retains her. So wisdom is described here as a tree of life, which is very interesting as we move forward. It may be surprising to you to learn that there's a section of the book of Proverbs that is widely believed to be dependent upon an Egyptian wisdom text called the Instructions of Amenemope. Now, frankly, there are differences of opinion in the academic literature as to the degree to which this is dependent on Amenemope, but most scholars do believe that there is a connection of some sort, and some of the recent studies that have been done have confirmed a fairly close connection between Amenemope and the book of Proverbs, based mostly on semantic and contextual grounds. But... um, but it's, most scholars believe there's a connection of some sort or just broad sharing of, of ideas from Amenemope. So the author of Proverbs, let's say Solomon, would have been interested in this. And actually the, the writings of Amenemope were, come from about the same period of time. And so Solomon would have been, as an international uh, person of international fame and wisdom, would have definitely have been interested in knowing what the Egyptians were saying up there about uh, about their uh, their understanding of success and how to make it in the world. So this pro- section of Proverbs is Proverbs twenty two seventeen through twenty four twenty two. So Proverbs twenty two seventeen through Proverbs twenty four twenty two. And let me read a section of the instruction. I'll read chapter one actually, which is only a few lines, but chapter one of the instruction on Amenemope. So right, what I'm reading right now is Egyptian wisdom literature. Listen to what I say. Learn my words by heart. Prosperity comes to those who keep my words in their hearts. Poverty comes to those who discard them. Enshrine my words in your souls. Lock them away in your hearts. When the words of fools blow like a storm, the words of the wise will hold like an anchor. Live your lives with my words in your heart, and you will live your lives with success. My words are a handbook for life on earth. My words will bring your body to life. Almost a resurrection claim there, isn't it? So uh, so my words will bring your body to life. Now, what's interesting is that earlier literature, wisdom literature from Egypt, was even more over the top in promising success to those who followed the teachings even more over the top than the sayings of Amenemope. Amenemope seems to tone it down by uh, emphasizing more than other uh, wisdom teachers the value of inner peace that comes through the acceptance of fate. This is kind of Amenemope's focus. He believes that there's, makes a, he makes a big distinction between silent men and heated men. Silent men are those who uh, kind of take life as it comes and don't try to push themselves on others, don't try to draw, draw attention to themselves. Heated men are people that are alpha males that are ready for a fight and push their way through the world. And Amenemopo claims that contrary to expectations, 
it's the quiet ones who will advance in this life. And Amenemope talks a lot about God or the gods. When he talks about gods by name, it's Re or Thoth. Uh, Thoth is a human body with an ibix head. Um, and uh, but, but usually Amenemope just talks about the God. Uh, and sometimes it gets translated the divine council. But it, it, it almost is like he talks, almost like he's a monotheist. And he talks about the God in most instances. And he, his concept of, of the God is very much emphasizes God's perfection. Uh, the God, the, just the absolute moral perfection of this God. He emphasizes the God as a judge, a provider. And most more than anything, he pro- emphasizes the God as this moral standard. In other words, he, he believes what he's claiming is that he's, uh, his teachings provide a moral standard for life. And how do we know that it's a moral standard? Well, it's what the God wants from you. So the God is like this moral base, the moral standard for life. And interestingly, the book of Proverbs is much the same way. The book of Proverbs talks about God a lot. It's not secular literature. Proverbs is very religious. It refers to God, to Yahweh, I think 88 times. But, um, but in Proverbs, God is, um, it, it, God, God is it's, Proverbs isn't covenantal in its focus, but it uses Yahweh, the covenantal name for God, a lot, which is kind of strange. Uh, Proverbs, as I said, uses the name Yahweh for God 88 times, but it doesn't talk about the covenant at all. Never mentions the covenant, Mount Sinai, Moses, Ten Commandments. None of that is mentioning, mentioned, it, but it always talks about like the focuses on creation and, and looking at the life through the perspective of wisdom that can be attained by studying the world closely, like behold the ants. You know, you study ants and you'll know how Yahweh wants you to live. But yeah, but it's still uh, grounded. The morality of the book of Proverbs is like Amenemope is grounded in the God of the covenant, Yahweh God. Although it doesn't emphasize covenant, it emphasizes more the creation, the God of creation, really. And so God is the objective reality that provides the religious background for right and wrong for both Amenemope and Proverbs. And so it's not really secular. They're both very, very religious in nature, but they're emphasizing more this connection to Yahweh or the, the God based on, on creation rather than the unique relationship that Israel has with God through covenant. Let's talk for a while about the anti-wisdom vibe that seems to be out there in the ancient world. In other words, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that seem to be very excited and thrilled about this wisdom tradition. And uh, we think about the passage we read uh, where in Proverbs, it's, wisdom is as wonderful as rubies and riches and all of that kind of thing. But there are other passages in the Bible that are very skeptical about it. And you can see why. I mean, this is international wisdom that's not connected to their covenant traditions. It's not connected to the God who led us out of Egypt. It's wisdom that comes from Egypt itself. God delivered us from Egypt. Why would we want to go to Egypt for, for Egyptian wisdom? And so in ancient Israel, there's a, there is still some evidence of a tradition that's out there. Remember this uh, against wisdom literature. Remember, this is a podcast called Biblical Conversations, and we're looking at places where there are conversations within the Bible itself, different sides of an opinion, where there's an argument about something. And there does seem to be an argument in the Bible against wisdom literature. (laughs) In other words, there are places in the Bible that are arguing that God doesn't want us to read this. God doesn't want us to know this wisdom because it's not our wisdom. It's the wisdom of Egypt and Babylon. And that's not what God wants for, for us. And the surprising place where we encounter this wisdom, anti-wisdom tradition, uh, most, uh, mo- I shouldn't say most clearly because it's, it's a, you have to really kind of uh, dig to get to this, but it does seem to be here. There does seem to be an anti-wisdom vibe in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 begins with a serpent. And right off the bat, 
there's a connection to the wisdom literature because in the ancient world, a serpent was a symbol of wisdom. The serpent was a symbol of knowledge of how to get things done in the world. Uh, for instance, even today, we use the, the staff of Hermes as a symbol for modern medicine. So it's that staff going down, and then there's two serpents kind of swirling around the staff, and then the wings of Hermes at the top. And so that's a symbol for modern medicine. Actually, interestingly, in the, that's kind of a mistake. Uh, in other words, in the United States, we use that as a symbol for medicine. But in the ancient world, uh, that was a symbol for trade, not medicine. Uh, the, symbol, the ancient symbol for medicine is called the Staff of Asclepius, which has only one uh, one serpent going up a, a simpler staff. It's not a, uh, a, a beautiful staff like the staff of Hermes. It's just kind of a walking stick. And Asclepius was an ancient healer. And so that's the symbol for, for wisdom. And even Jesus says, be wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. And so even Jesus has this notion of, of serpents being associated with wisdom. And you can find images in the ancient world of people going to uh, serpents to, to ask for wisdom. And so serpents were a symbol of wisdom in the ancient world and wisdom represented in the, the medis, medical field and in trade, both areas where you had to have knowledge of the world, worldly knowledge, secular knowledge of how to get good and avoid suffering and pain. Uh, you needed both of those. For, that's, what, that's what medicine's all about, isn't it? And so the, in the ancient world, the serpent was a symbol of wisdom, which was a good thing. We use it even today in the symbol of medicine. Um, and, but in the Genesis chapter 3, the serpent is not a good thing. The serpent is a dangerous animal that's leading us away from God and in later tradition even becomes Satan. Uh, but the, in the Bible, it's not Satan. It's just a serpent. That's the, one of the animals that the Lord God had made. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, I'm look, reading from the Common English Bible. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Sometimes that's translated in uh, uh, shrewd, sometimes uh, crafty. The, the serpent was the most crafty of all the animals that the Lord God had made. But notice the Lord God made it, right? It's, so God, God made it. But the serpent is uh, crafty. So the serpent says to the woman, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, We may eat from the fruit of the tr garden's trees, but not from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it and don't even touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. God knows on the day that you eat from it, you'll see clearly and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was was delicious food and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the serpent here isn't really lying. That Well, the, he's, when the serpent says you won't die, they didn't actually die. The serpent really doesn't, it doesn't come here to lie. The serpent comes to place doubt in their minds and to make them think that maybe God doesn't want them to have this power that be like God, knowing good and evil. That would be a bad thing from the perspective of this writer because it's, you know, knowing how to survive in the world without God. God wants us to have just a simple trust in him. But from the perspective of the serpent, knowing good and evil is a good thing because it's knowing how to get ahead in the world. Don't you want that? You should want the, the knowledge of good and evil. So the Genesis chapter 3, first of all, starts out with a serpent, which is a symbol of wisdom in the ancient world. It calls the serpent shrewd. The serpent was more shrewd, intelligent, as this translation has it, uh, shrewd or crafty, arum in Hebrew. Now, here's what's very interesting about this, that, that, that this is a bad thing, right? In Genesis chapter 3, to be shrewd is like, like the serpent. It's bad. God doesn't want us to be shrewd. And yet, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4, it says the point of Proverbs is to teach shrewdness to the simple. Would you believe it's the same word? So in Genesis chapter 3, this wisdom is a wisdom of shrewdness, which is a bad thing. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4, the 
wisdom is to teach shrewdness, which is a good thing. You need to be shrewd. And Genesis chapter 3 is like, nah, you don't want to be shrewd. Shrewdness is a bad thing. It's like knowing how to manipulate your way through the through life and, and do things on your own. You need to have just simple trust in God. If you're shrewd, you're going to end up being a wicked and evil person. And yet Genesis chapter 3 is like, hey, shrewdness is a good thing. You don't want to be simple. You want to be shrewd. So again, there seems to be an argument in the Bible about whether or not we should be reading this secular and uh, wisdom from other nations. Why would we want to read the wisdom of literature, literature from Egypt? God's delivered us from Egypt. Now, then the, the, the whole name of the trees is important. Remember, we already saw that wisdom was talked about in, uh, uh, in Proverbs chapter 3 as the tree of life. Wisdom is a tree of life to all that lay hold of her, Proverbs chapter 3, 18. Yet here, the tree of life is not the tree representing wisdom. The tree of life is like simple trust in God tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the wisdom tree, the forbidden tree. It's the tree that God is saying, do not eat from the fruit of this tree. Now, it's a little bit strange because you could go, why not have the knowledge of good and evil? But in this context, the knowledge of good and evil, and then the wisdom context, knowledge of good and evil doesn't mean like moral good and evil. It's more like how to have knowledge about how to get the good stuff in life and to avoid the sad, bad stuff in life, how to avoid the, the miserable aspects of life and to get as much good out of life as you can. And it's interesting that uh, that in Proverbs, I'm sorry, in First Kings chapter three, when Solomon is just beginning his kingship, he uh, remember God says Solomon. He goes into the temple at Gibeon and prays and uh, has a dream, and God comes to him in the dream and says, "Solomon, give me whatever I'll give you, whatever you ask for." And Solomon says, "You know, God, I really want you to give me a heart that can discern between good and evil, so that I can rule my people well and that I can be a wise and good king." And God. God says, Solomon, that's wonderful. That's great that you prayed for that. And because of that, I'm going to give you wisdom and give you all the riches as well. And so in that context, Solomon is praying for the knowledge of good and evil. That's what he's asking God for. He wants to have the knowledge of good and evil. And Solomon, of course, represents the wisdom tradition. He's praying for the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, in Genesis chapter 3, the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as if it's something that's forbidden. You should not ask God for that. You shouldn't imbibe of the tree. You shouldn't eat for the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet in Genesis, in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon is praying for, it's like Solomon in Genesis, in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon's praying for the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. He's praying to for that fruit, the very fruit that God is telling them not to eat in Genesis 3, Solomon prays for in 1 Kings 3, and God celebrates that. So in other words, in the Bible, we have a difference of opinion upon this fruit, and the fruit of knowledge of good and evil represents wisdom, the secular wisdom. And in Genesis 3, it's like saying, don't eat of that fruit because it will make you uh, be, make you like God on your own, being able to manipulate this world without God as if you're a God yourself. You'll be your own source of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible is saying, you don't want that. You want the tree of life, which is simple trust in God. You don't want to eat from that tree. That's the serpent's knowledge. That's not God's knowledge. And the last point where you really see Genesis 3 as kind of have an anti-wisdom vibe is in verse 6 where it says, the woman saw that the tr fruit of the tree was beautiful and with delicious fruit and that the tree would provide wisdom, that the fruit of the tree would make one wise. So this is not good wisdom. This is bad wisdom, right? This is wisdom that gives you this power that God really doesn't want you to have. It's not something that you should have. It's too much for you. You don't want to have the power of manipulating the world without God's uh, control and presence and care. You should just simply trust God and, and believe in God and rely on God and not desire this kind of wisdom. So Eve sees that the fruit is desirable to make one wise. It's surprising that the 
that the writer of this doesn't jump into the story and say, hey, wait a minute, this is, you know, and provide some explanation because we're kind of scratching our head going, what's wrong with being wise? Doesn't God want us to be wise? And the point here is that in this context and for the writer of this story, there's an anti, this writer is saying, look, this is not good wisdom. It's not wisdom that God really wants us to have. It's dangerous wisdom. It's wisdom that that leads us away from simple trust in God. So Genesis 3 originally was intended to warn readers against the dangers of wisdom. And what else are we supposed to say? It says that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. So you have all these four different points of contact with the wisdom tradition. So again, there, first of all, the, 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 the animal that is uh, seducing them is a serpent, which is, uh, which is a symbol of wisdom. Secondly, the serpent is shrewd, which is a good thing. Wisdom literature is supposed to make you shrewd, and yet here it's a bad thing. Don't be shrewd. Third thing is it's a fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. In the wisdom tradition, that's a good thing. Wisdom tradition is to give you knowledge of good and evil. And yet here, don't have the knowledge of good and evil. Simple tree of life is like simple trust in God, knowledge of how to be a God unto yourself. And that's a bad thing to not have the knowledge of getting the good stuff and avoiding the bad stuff on your own without trusting God. You're a God for your, to yourself. Why do you need even God at that point? So that's a bad thing. And finally, uh, the fruit of the tree was desirable to make one wise, which is a bad thing in Genesis 3. And yet it seems to be a good thing for Solomon and who prays for the, to be able to consume this fruit. There's another passage of scripture that seems to have an anti-wisdom theme, and that is Job chapter 28. The book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes, even though they're technically wisdom literature, both have uh, this theme, or both of them as bodies of literature, ask hard questions of the wisdom tradition. But in the middle of the book of Job, there's an independent chapter that seems to be particularly anti-wisdom, or that is uh, really fundamentally challenging some of the basic ideas that are out there in the wisdom world. Remember, the wisdom literature is built on this assumption that the world can be understood and studied, that you can study the world and really learn from it wisdom as to how we ought to live our lives in this world. And so the book of uh, or the chapter 28 in the book of Psalm and the book of Job is is an independent chapter. It doesn't seem to be uh, connected to the rest of the book. It seems to be dropped here or, or inserted here. It doesn't say at the beginning it's by Job or that Job spoke these words or the Lord spoke these words. It just is a poem that is inserted here in chapter 28 for some reason. And it starts out with a celebration, really, of the expertise that humans have developed in mining. And it talks about uh, that mines can be developed where we have a sure source of silver, a place where gold is refined. Iron, it says in uh, 28.2, is taken from the earth. Rock is smelted into copper. Humans have put an end to darkness. They dig for ore to the farthest depths into stone in utter darkness. So they can take these lights and go down to these dark places. and discover precious metals and produce great wealth. And so it celebrates that. And then in verse 12, it says, But wisdom, where can it be found? Where is the place of understanding? And it poses these two words back to back several times, wisdom, chokhmah, and uh, understanding, bina. And it places them uh, together repeatedly. Wisdom, where can it be found? Where is the place of understanding? Humankind doesn't know its value. It isn't found in the land of the living. So you'd think that you could study the world and figure out how you ought to live. And yet humankind doesn't really even know its value. It's not found in the land of the living. You can't just study the world that's around you and figure out how you can, uh, how you ought to live, what the rights and wrongs of life are are. It says, deep says, it's not with me. And the sea says, not alongside me. So in other words, the deep itself is like, imagine to speak here and saying, 
You can't find wisdom by coming down into this mine. You can go into the mine with all the lights you want in the world, but you can't find wisdom down there, not the kind of wisdom that tells you how you ought to live. And the sea is the same way. You can go in the ocean and and search all you want, but you can't find wisdom there. And then it kind of makes a shift in verse 13 and verse 14, sorry, verse 15, where it says it can't be bought. Wisdom can't be bought with gold. So you can get all this wealth by mining, but you can't use that wealth to purchase wisdom. It just can't, it can't be done. So verse 20, again, you see wisdom and understanding together, but wisdom, where does she come from? Where is the place of understanding? So Chokmah and Bina again, uh, side by side. She's hidden from the eyes of all the living, concealed from birds of the air. So wisdom teachers believe that they could that it wasn't concealed from the eyes of the living. Uh, the wise people can look at the world and discern from that how they ought to live. But uh, the but this chapter is written by someone who disagrees. It says she's hidden. Uh, wisdom is hidden from the eyes of the living. And even destruction and death have said, uh, we have heard the report of her. So in other words, uh, and this is verse 22, destruction and death have heard of wisdom, but even in death, you, can, you cannot know how you ought to live because the, they may have heard the report of her, but they still can't teach us how we ought to live. And then in verse 23, there's a, a shift in theme from human lack of wisdom to God's uh, ownership of wisdom and complete uh, uh, control of wisdom. So verse 23 says, God understands her way. He knows her place for he looks to the ends of the earth and surveys everything beneath the heavens in order to weigh the wind and to prepare a measure for waters when he made a decree for the rain and a path for thunderbolts. Then he observed it, which would be wisdom. He spoke of it. He established it. He searched it out. And he said to humankind, or Adam, he said to humankind, and I'm using the common English Bible here. Um, he said, so God spoke to humankind, look, the fear of the Lord is chokmah. Turning from evil is bina. The wisdom and understanding are the fear of the Lord and turning from evil. But it doesn't come from studying the universe and searching it out and using all this knowledge that you can gain. It comes from the, from the Lord knowing it and speaking it to us. God is the source of understanding. And God says, no, I know what's right and wrong. And you're going to have to hear it from me. You can't go figure this out on your own. Again, that would be like the tree of life. That would be, I'm sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's like you're, you are your own basis for knowing good and evil. And you're always going to make the wrong choice if you try to figure that out on your own. You have to come to me for that. And I'm telling you what you ought to know. And here's what you need to know. The fear of the Lord is wisdom and turning from evil is understanding. And so this is challenging the very roots of the wisdom tradition. Interestingly, it also, um, the, this language, the fear of the Lord is wisdom and turning from evil is understanding, is exactly the way it describes Job right at the very beginning of the book. It says, he feared God and avoided evil. <clears throat> and so Job is a person who has wisdom. So even though Job is completely distraught at this point and completely befuddled and doesn't understand what's going on, he's described by chapter 28, and this may be the point of the chapter here, that even though Job doesn't know what's going on, uh, still he's living a life of wisdom. Even though he's completely distraught, he's living a life of understanding. And, um, and so it seems to have this message that that there's a wisdom and an understanding that has value and that is the way you ought to live, even if you're suffering. So wisdom, it seems to be saying, has an intrinsic value. And you can't get this knowledge from studying the world. It can only be told to us by God. Wisdom has an intrinsic value. Even if you're suffering, you ought to be wise. In, the w wisdom of God is not instrumental like other wisdom teachers would say. So here's how it's anti-wisdom. Other wisdom teachers would say, and this is in the book of Proverbs, right? That if you live this life and if you live 
a life of wisdom and understand that I can teach you, then your life will be blessed. Your life will be freed from any kind of suffering and sorrow and chaos. You'll live a life of order and blessing. And especially remember the introduction, the first chapter to the uh, instruction of Amenemope. It really makes that claim. But that claim is also made in the book of Proverbs. Uh, that the Proverbs claims to be able to give you a life of blessing if you live according to wisdom. And here it's saying, saying, look, Job was a perfectly wise man, even though he was suffering. So wisdom isn't just instrumental like as other wisdom teachers might think. Uh, it's not instrumental. It's not just something to get you the good life. That's not the point of wisdom. Wisdom has an intrinsic value that's worth having, even if you're suffering. It, so here it describes this person that describes wisdom. And you can only get this from God. You can't get this from studying the world. Only God can give you this kind of deep knowledge that will abide with you even if you're suffering. And so the message is anti-wisdom in that it's saying you can't get this knowledge from the world, though you can study it all you want. God has to speak this to you. And this, and the, the wisdom teachers are teaching you that the wisdom of God is instrumental. It's to get you stuff, to get you a good life. But I'm telling you, it's saying that the wisdom that God has, that we've spoken to us by God, is not instrumental. It's, it's, uh, it goes to the very nature of things. It's intrinsic in the wisdom itself. So there is wisdom out there, but it's wisdom that has to be given to us by God. It can't be something that you just figure out on your own. So again, even though it's talking about wisdom and the goodness of Hokmah and Bina, it's challenging the very basic structures of the wisdom tradition that's out there and accepted uh, in the ancient world at this time. So where was the compromise? We see these two groups of people that must have been at each other's throats. Some of them saying, look, this literature from Egypt is the tree of life. It's beautiful literature. It gives us wisdom on how to live our lives. And other people would say, but it's the literature of Re and Tot, Thoth, the gods of Egypt. Why would you want to read their literature? We are people of Moses. We are people of the covenant. We are people of Yahweh. How would you want to read that literature? It's like eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's like, uh, it's like being a, a source of, of, of a god unto yourself. Why would you want that? That's the message of the serpent. That's not the tree of life. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there's this debate that must have been going on. And where was the compromise? The compromise must have come in the new emphasis that is in the book of Proverbs, as opposed to finding it what we find in other wisdom literature from other nations. A strong emphasis right at the beginning in the fear of the Lord, of Yahweh. I mentioned before that the book of Proverbs uses the name Yahweh 88 times. So the book of Proverbs really wants to emphasize this is the God of the word. This is literature, not of Thoth and Re, Egyptian gods, <coughs> the gods mentioned in uh, the wisdom of Amenemope. This is, this is the literature of Yahweh. And we're going to start out by reminding everybody that it's the fear of Yahweh that's the beginning of true knowledge. If you want true knowledge, that's where it starts. We're going to really emphasize Yahweh's role in this and the, the fear of Yahweh as the beginning of knowledge. And then uh, Pro, that's Proverbs 1, 7. And then Proverbs uh, 3, 5, and 6 talks about trusting in the Lord. Well, and this is the most famous passage in the whole book. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. So it's saying like right from the start, we don't trust in this literature. We don't trust in this wisdom. We trust in the Lord and we trust in the Lord with all our heart. We don't rely on this insight. We rely on the Lord. 
and we acknowledge him and he'll make our path straight. This might be helpful there, you know, to help make your path straight. But we really start by a strong recognition that Yahweh is our God and that we will not see this literature as as a um, as something we put our trust in. And then it also says, the next verse says, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil, which again is a strong reminder that, uh, that you can be wise in your own eyes. That's not what we want either. We don't want wisdom in our own eyes. We want to trust in God. And, uh, and that there's a danger to this of being, uh, being uh, limitations to this wisdom that we can be wise in our own eyes. And even in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30, it talks about this wisdom that can be against, against the Lord. It says, there's no true wisdom that's against the Lord. And then in, um, in chapter 20, 26, verse 12, it says, see a person who's wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for that person. So this the Proverbs really emphasizes the limitations of wisdom. And I think that's written in in order to say, look, we don't take this too far. We, are, we recognize that this literature is good, but it's not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's, uh, it, we, we only look to the Lord for true wisdom and that we can, you can take this way too far. So that's the compromise. They developed a compromise. They said, look, uh, so then we would have had these two sides arguing. What is this literature? Some people saying it's the tree of life. Other people saying it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then they compromised and said, okay, if we limit this, if we say, if we recognize that, that wisdom has a very limited role, and if we remember that it all starts out with trusting in the Lord with all your heart, then this literature is good. It can be helpful. But we have to remember that we our trust is in God and not in our own wisdom. And um, how do we know that there is a compromise? Well, the simple fact that the, book, the Bible includes the book of Proverbs, that itself is evidence of a compromise. There's quite a lot of borrowing of Egyptian wisdom, but it's put into a very, very specific context that that limits it and makes it less dangerous to the, the, to the Jewish soul, so to speak. So a few final thoughts. Uh, so within the pages of sacred scripture, we find examples of a remarkable compromise. The Bible has examples of people that are disagreeing. You can see both sides of the disagreement in the Bible and then eventually a compromise. And this compromise is a good one because if we rely on our own human intellect only, like just wisdom, 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 if we rely on that, we tend to end up, well, where the book of Ecclesiastes ended up in skepticism and narcissism. We tend to end up there. Well, and I should clarify that the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't really end there because the very end is uh, is much more hopeful about trusting in God. And but still, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes has a very strong skepticism and narcissism vibe until the last few verses. But also, if so, if we rely on our own human intellect too much we can lead to narcissism. On the other hand, if you just rely on faith, that can lead to credulity, where you believe things foolishly that, uh, without thinking about them deeply. So the Bible finds a, provides for us a good balance, not only in, ter- in terms of uh, showing a provide, uh, shows an example of compromise, but the Bible also provides an example of showing a balance between uh, rationality and faith that our faith ought to include reason uh, along with it, a healthy dose of reason along with faith. As, uh, as Wesleyans often say, our, our faith is based on scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. So the, th- the four elements of, um, de- de- of developing a theology based on scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. So there we are. I hope you enjoyed that conversation on the question of wisdom in ancient Israel and the debate that was going on and the way they were able to attain a a compromise and find a compromise solution that worked for everyone. I hope that uh, this is meaningful to you. We certainly need that ability to think from the middle in, uh, in our modern day and age. And so 
Um, so I hope that was meaningful to you. I do want to encourage you to uh, rate and review this and Apple especially and, uh, and share this podcast to your wall. And uh, I hope that it's meaningful to you and that you will share it with others. Uh, also, just want to remind you, as we said at the very beginning, that my conversation with, uh, with Adam and Brandon will come next in the next episodes. I don't know, depending on how the, the recording goes, uh, we'll either do two more episodes or one uh, with their um, with their conversation with them. Also, I'm going to add an episode coming up uh, with a conversation with Carl Kroger again. Uh, you might remember Carl Kroger was one of our participants in the conversation about the three versions of the Ten Commandments. And Carl told me the other day, you know, I'm really interested in the uh, the episode you did on intergenerational punishment. And so um, he said, I really think I have some things that I'd like to per- uh, participate in that. And so I thought, well, we'll just do a whole episode with Carl, depending again, on how uh, much we have material we have we'll do a whole episode on Carl's perspective on the issue of intergenerational punishment and uh, as you might remember that I only had a conversation with Adam on that topic and so we'll fill that out with uh, with another episode of uh, kind of filling out that topic so uh, again, please rate and review, uh, post this to your wall, invite friends to listen to biblical conversations and um, remember that the word of God is for the people of God. Thanks be to God.